0: Well, good morning. It's an exciting day. I love this. This is a fun study on the Day of the Lord. So that's going to be our primary focus today is the Day of the Lord. Now, very briefly, I want to go back over what we did last week, okay? Last week, we looked at some specific marker points. There were basically four things that we, we drew out of Chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Um, do you remember what the order was in your mind without even looking at the board. I know I've already marked it. Don't look. But do you remember what has to happen before the day of the Lord will come, according to 2 Thessalonians 2? That apostasy must come first. Now, when we identified the apostasy last week, what did we say was uh, about it that would make it uh, distinctive for us, that we would know uh, it's different? Are there apostasies going on right now? Did it? It seemed to indicate that this particular apostasy, being marked with that definitive article, the the apostasy, that it's going to be something even more profoundly unique and even more pre- profoundly um, um, maybe devastating at the time that it occurs. This apostasy. What does apostasy mean? Okay, it's a falling away or a rejection, right? And we said in the context of what we looked at, it's a rejection of who or, and what? God himself and his word, correct? So it's a falling away from God and his principles and his righteousness, right? The, the, the righteous living that he has ordained for a man to live uh, under. Okay, so the apostasy must come first, and then what happens? There's going to be a man of lawlessness that is going to be revealed. Now, there's something though that's holding him back from being revealed right now, the restrainer. And where? What is this restrainer doing? And when? Restraining. Rest- okay. Yeah, he's restraining, and he's rest- restra- and has been doing so since when? Since the church was birthed, exactly. So he, because we know the teaching was, by, was given by Paul, and this is something... When we went back, remember, because we just did Acts, we did that study, we saw him go into Thessalonica, we saw him birth that church, and apparently very shortly after, then he wrote that first letter of Thessalonians, now the second one, and these were written very close after the birthing of that church, so this information about the coming of the Lord was something that was taught to them right away, and he told them when he Uh, taught them about a restrainer and that they would understand you know what restrains him now whatever it is he didn't make it quite as clear to us right but we we have now come to see that probably whatever this restrainer is it pertains to what and whom what do you think this restrainer pertains to it's something that's restraining okay who who is this man of lawlessness he is going to be the Antichrist. Now, we just talked about this, Carrie. What's going on presently in our world today concerning Antichrist? There are many. There are many. There are many. First John teaches us that there are many. So there's a definitive article again that says there is the man of lawlessness. There is the uh, um, antichrist who is to come but there are many antichrists right now there are apostasies that are going on right now but there is the apostasy which will happen and which will occur just before he is he is revealed but what must be removed that restrainer whatever that restrainer is Um, what are some options for the restrainer potentially we're talking the holy spirit now what might be the problem with the thought of the Holy Spirit is going to be removed? Okay, well, for one thing, if he's removed, then what happens to us? We're going to, right? Now, is it specifically the, the Holy Spirit being removed? Do you think the Holy Spirit's presence in the world is removed ever? What is God by definition? Omnipresent, yeah. He's all knowing, he's all seeing, and he's everywhere at all times. So God in Spirit never truly leaves. Correct? He will always be the sovereign, which literally is the glue. If you do a, a Genesis account, he's that which holds everything together by the power of it, even his word. Right? So it's probably not exclusively then the Holy Spirit, but then the secondary one idea then was that it would be who us who have that. Do you think that we as the church have some kind of restraining work concerning lawlessness in our world today? Yes. Yeah. So potential, I mean, I'm not being, I'm not going to say absolutely this is what it is, but I'm going I'm just sit, trying to give us some things to think about. What is it that could be restraining right now that man of lawlessness full revealing and the, the idea that uh, the scripture teaches is there are many antichrists. So in other words, the potential is there for any one of them to rise up and be that in time. If he were only given the opportunity, he would seize it, right? So when he does come and when he's allowed to go to full measure, to full apostasy and to full lawlessness, as, as we know he will do... Um, Then until then, though, there is something restraining that back, something holding that back until these other things occur. So the first thing we're looking for then is is an an extensive apostasy. Restrainer is going to be removed, then the lawless one will be revealed. Now, did God just leave us there? What did he then tell us was going to eventually happen to that lawless one? He will, he will be destroyed. And what does it tell us in 2.8? In 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Yeah. That the Lord will slay him, and how? With the breath of his mouth, when? At his coming. So I think that's really... I'm going to put that one up here also. The Lord will slay the lawless one at... His coming, okay? So this gives us a very brief review of what we laid out last week, and I put that up there right now um, in order to just kind of give you a foundation. From there, I would recommend if you don't have paper available, do we have extra paper available in case we needed it for everybody? Um, Oh, wonderful, on the round table if anybody runs out of paper you'll have it back there but when Kay does her video today you're going to definitely want to keep notes handy it is an amazing video I am so excited about what she did I loved it and I'm really thankful that the Lord led me to watch it because I don't usually watch them at all even in class sometimes I miss them I'm out in the hall Um, but this time I decided because of the the work that we did in our homework i was curious where she was going to go with with her teaching and so what i am going to do is with this review and this timeline kind of laid out and started you're going to be able to build off of that with the things that she's going to show you today and you're going to be able to take those first thessalonians the first corinthians uh, verses romans all those other things and we're going to add them in onto this timeline that is, in fact, how you learn your eschatology. It's the best way in the world. Do a timeline. Every time you figure out where something is and you know for sure that's where it goes, you plug it in. Okay? And then, and then in time, you start to see where things fit in what sequential order they occur. Correct? Um, another thing that we did last week... Uh, at least it was my hope to was to draw a conclusion about the day of the Lord by definition. What did we see were some things from last week that occur in the day of the Lord? Well, let's compare two verses. Second Thessalonians two eight. We saw what we should, which we just talked about, right? What's going to happen? The lawless one is going to be slain, right? But on the other hand, in 2 Thessalonians 1.10, what's going to happen? What did you say? Yeah, the saints are going to be glorified on that day. Do those sound like the same event? And if Jesus is giving us our glory, is he at the same time dealing out wrath and slaying the lawless one so it is two events right and yet they're both underneath the title of in that day right okay so that in the end what we came up with is we determined about the day of the lord then is it a single event at a single moment or is it a multitude of events that happen over a course of time Multitude of things over a course. So it's a span of time when, when God refers to the day of the Lord, okay? And there's lots of different parts to that day of the Lord. There's going to be, we know, having done Revelation, a lot of what we see up here is actually in the Revelation record. We know that there's going to be a lawless one revealed. We also saw how that time frame gets broken down, how Daniel gives us a marker in the midpoint where that man of lawlessness Uh, actually uh, uh, works at specific things that Jesus himself warned of now this was something that came to my mind when I was kind of reflecting on this this morning was um, back in Matthew when Jesus was still walking with his disciples and he was still teaching them remember they came out of the temple and they asked him a really profound question right do you remember kind of what the question was Yeah, when will these things occur, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Right. So he ax- he ax- they actually asked him, give us signs, right? right? So uh, he goes through then, and he says, this will happen, and this will happen. So this is in Matthew 24, if you want to write it down. He tells them about this time frame very, in very big details. And what you're going to find, having done Joel, is you're going to see a lot of matching up of events. Um, when you do a study in Revelation, you're going to see a lot of matching up of events. When we go through 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, we can see where things are going to start to match up. And if you keep doing this systematically and, and consistently, lining these things up and, and putting them on your timeline pretty soon, you're going to start to see everything fitting right where it, where it goes. You're going to get to see the basic order. There are still some slight confusions, but not a lot. Would you say God wants us? To be confused about the end time? No. no. And yet, it, I think it's really exciting that God, uh, in His great wisdom, He laid this out in, in very small, bite sized pieces. Could you imagine trying to give every detail at one time to somebody? Well, you couldn't handle it. Have, have you ever had somebody ask you questions about the end times and you're like, okay, let's see, where do I start? <laughs> right? Have you had that happen? I have all the time. People are like, well, what's the, what does this mean? And I'm like, oh, gosh, okay. <laughs> I can give you the exact answer, but you're going to be confused. I have to back up like three steps, tell you all these other things first so that you are where I am, right? So this is the way God did it. He, his, his revealing um, actually explains to us this word, mystery. Do you remember we've looked at the mystery of lawlessness last week also what did we determine about that word mystery just not re- fully revealed yet right there's pieces of it we know there's some of it that we know but there's a mystery to a degree we know that there is lawlessness happening right now but there is a and there's a mystery of lawlessness which is already present in the world right now right yeah. correct we didn't put that on the board i should have huh There is a mystery which we are in right now to a measure. But one day that lawless one will be revealed, right? Right now it's a bit of a mystery. However, it's not a full mystery, is it? What does God tell us about uh, his plan and in our relationship to him? Does he reveal these things to us? Does he keep things hidden from his friends? No. No. Yes, and through the prophets, right? So what is it that Revelation says over and over, in particular in those first three chapters to the church? He says to the church over and over, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's right. So we have the written word of God. We have all the pieces in here. We just have to dig them all out and get them put in the right place. We have to be patient with ourselves, however. It does not all come at one time. And for people who struggle with um, eschatology studies, they don't like them because they make them feel uncomfortable or because they're so complicated, they get frustrated or whatever. All I can say to you is this. What was the exhortation in 1 Thessalonians to the Thessalonian church about the coming of the day? When, what is... Well, he says in Second Thessalonians, fast that's that which you have been taught, right? In chapter 2, verse 15. But in First Thessalonians, he said, we commend you because when you received the word, right? You received it with joy, but you, and, and he says, and you were doing what about the coming of the Lord? Do you remember that? I, I can't, do you remember? Let's go back and see if we can find that one. have to find the right sheet we have a lot of sheets to look through this week don't we (laughs) I might have to open my Bible to get to it too because I might not have it printed he talks about that the first thing that they did was they were waiting for what the coming of the Lord right from the very beginning of their of their spiritual birth they were waiting for the coming of the Lord since the day that we reported, say it again. Yes, I've got that one right here, 4, 13 to 5, 1. Right, but I think there was a verse in, in uh, First Thessalonians. Yes, thank you. Say it again, read it for me. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians 1.10, wait, right, waiting for the coming of Jesus, correct? Who's going to rescue us from what? Rescue, Rescue us from the wrath to come. Isn't that awesome? That was what the Thessalonian church, when they were first birthed, were taught to do right off the bat. Wait for the coming of the Lord. Keep your eyes on that thing which God has promised he's going to do for you. Understand that you are going to be rescued from the, day, from the wrath that is to come. Well, have we not looked at a bunch of wrath this week? Right? A lot, of, a lot of scary things that we looked at in this particular week's homework. Okay, so what I want to do is let's start by going into Joel chapter 2 and 3. And in order to kind of uh, get ready to talk about some of the details, I don't know about you, but she asked us to go in and look at Joel 2 and 3 and to, st- and to make a list on things that you uh, uh, learned about the day of the Lord from observing it, right? So the, would you say that you almost got a little bit overwhelmed with all the details? This the, this da- day of darkness, the day of gloom, the, you know, the, the earthquake, so whatever. It was just so much information that I almost got overwhelmed with too much detail that I lost the big picture. Have you ever heard of people saying you lose the, the forest for the trees? I feel like that's what happened with me in, in looking at Joel this week. Because it wasn't quite... Um, there wasn't quite big enough chunky pieces. So that was on my day one. The first day I went in and looked at Joel 2 and 3, I did it that way. I went in and did just what she said and started making my list. It got overwhelming. I got lost and bogged down in all of the details. So the next day when I went in there, I said, okay, if I'm getting bogged down and I'm going, I'm confused, what am I supposed to be seeing here, right? What am I, as a student, what am I looking for? Um, I decided to back up and simplify those two chapters first so that I could see a very systematic flow of thought. Okay, that should trigger your ears to say, oh, I know what she's going to do. What helps us determine flow of thought? Well, context gives us understanding of the flow of thought, but what gives, how do we deter, how do we see a flow of thought in any chapter that we do? What do we do in order to see the flow of thought? Almost, you also are getting close, say it again. Okay, you're getting close, okay, keep going. How about paragraphs? You look for your paragraphs, remember? Okay, yes, okay, okay, well this is a great, blur- I know, come on, Come on, girls, you guys have been doing this a long time. We're going to get this down. Okay, this is again another moment to go back to inductive Bible study principles of what you're doing and why you're doing it, okay? When you want to know what your author's flow of thought is... Um, you need to see how the the paragraphs flow, right? How he goes from one subject to another. When you were in basic English classes and literature classes, did you not learn that the first thing you do is that the, the first sentence in each paragraph is your capturing moment, and you, you state the big point, and then you explain. Then you go to your next main point, and you explain. You go to your next main point, and you explain, sort of, right? Well, in, in para- looking for paragraph flow of thoughts, we're doing the same thing, but we do it by exactly what you said. You're going to look for your keywords, right, and mark them. Um, and uh, that's going to help you see, then, the flow of thought for each paragraph. When the thought Primary, uh, the, the major focus of the thought changes to a new subject, then you know you've changed paragraphs. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're going to go back and look at Joel and we're going to do that together. We're going to do paragraphs. So we're going to divide chapter one and chapter two into a nice flow of thought first. Then we'll be able to dissect it down and try to pull out of it what we need to know about the day of the Lord. For our purposes of what we're studying here in, in Second Thessalonians, okay? All right. So we'll start in Joel two, and I'm just gonna give you my divisions and there there's no secrecy to them, right? You know that they're just mine. Okay? And let's look at chapter two of Joel. Pull out your observation worksheet that you worked on. Did you all print out an observation worksheet for Joel? Oh, good. I sent it to you. Oh, I'm so glad I did that. <laughs> oh, I didn't remember I did that. I'm glad I did. Okay. Um, okay. See, organization. Thank you, Lois. <laughs> All right. Okay. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11 first. When your eye flows down in this section here, we begin to see that the subject uh, for us is, is actually laid out right away in verse 1, 2, and 3. Did you see how the major subject is is listed for you there? What is the major subject that's given to us? There's the day of the Lord is coming, right? So there's the day of the Lord is coming. And so he says about that. about that then what in 1 through 11? Do you see some... Any kind of major points, or as you marked yours, what did you see he was saying to them? What was the sensation that you got, the feeling that you got as you r- read through those first 11 verses? Doom and gloom. Doom and, and Yes, yeah, so a lot of, so do, would you call it warning? Yeah. It seems to me like there was a big warning about one day there's a day of the Lord that's coming. Were they in the day of the Lord? No, it's coming, right? So you should have marked that with a clock because it's a time indicator. It shows you that it's yet in the future. And what God is saying is, there's a day of the Lord that is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be ever again after it. Did that not remind you? Okay, good girl. Diane, where do you remember hearing that? In Daniel. And what does Daniel say? Do you remember where in Daniel?
1: I believe it's in the 12th
0: chapter. Yes, it is. Good girl. Chapter 12, verse 1 of Daniel. Someone flip that open real quick. This is a warning. Okay, what does it say there? So does that sound just a little bit familiar with some of the things that we looked at this week? He says there very clearly, he says, there will come a day, uh, a day which has never been one like it before and shall never be again. Would you say that kind of gives you the sensation of something uh, more intense than what we're in right now where, yeah, we see lawlessness going on, but we're not yet in that full intensity of full lawlessness where he would call it a day like you've never seen before. And one, thankfully, will never come again, right? Okay, so that's just your first reminder from our old study. Daniel chapter 1 actually makes the same reference to this day, right? All right, now, in 11, what else do you see in there? We could list, and I'm not going to do the list of your... um, you know the things that you learned about the day of the Lord, but just start telling me some things that you saw about the day of the Lord. Dark. Okay, dark, a day of darkness and gloom, in verse two.
1: It's very similar to Revelation because it starts with the
0: trumpet. Oh yeah, very interesting. There's going to be a trumpet, the sound of a trumpet. What verse was that? Uh, one, oh, two, one Okay. Oh yeah, blow a trumpet. Yeah. You know what's interesting about that? I don't know about you, but we talk about trumpets a lot in the scripture. There are trumpets for everything. What did God use trumpet sounds for, by the way? To call the, to call the people. That's it. It was simply to call an assembly. That was his purpose in having trumpets. So Although we know that, for one thing, there are some trumpets in the book of Revelation also that are going to be sounded, right, during a specific time frame of it. But are those the only trumpets of God? Yeah. No, God has trumpets for a lot of things. He's used them in the Old Testament, and there are some that are spoken of in other places that are not related to necessarily those seven trumpets of the Revelation account, but may be affiliated in some way in that they're still it's a sounding and, and a, a calling. And in a lot of ways, often, it's almost like an, a sense of urgency. Come quickly. We we are assembling, right? All right. Um what else do you see in the verse 12 verses there, 11 verses of Joel? like a mighty army. coming and consuming everything in front of Okay, very interesting. Did anybody go back to chapter 1 to say, what is this army about? Anybody get really desirous to know context? <laughs> I know that's a hard concept to get into y'all's mind, but did anybody think to do that? Um, if you go back into chapter 1, the, what, he, what Joel does is he introduces, a, at that point, um, an army, basically, of locusts. There's locusts coming upon the land, right? But in chapter 2, there seems to be a retaining of the use of the idea of locusts, and yet they're used more for imagery of something else right? Would you say that? When he talks about uh, an army coming in, and if he's in chapter one talking about physical locusts, little bugs, right? In two, how do you see that it seems to change? Okay, yeah, so it sounds very human, right? It doesn't sound like something that locusts would do, who just swarm over it all, okay, all right. Are there any words in here that actually indicate to you that it's people? There you go, mighty people, like mighty people arranged for, what about in verse 2? So there's a great and mighty people, right? Uh, What about in 7? They run like mighty men. In other words, these are, the, my, these are mighty men. Now, later what you're going to see as we look at this also is they seem to be wanting dominion over Israel, the people. So we know that this is speaking of actual literal people, and there's going to be, there's more explanation. I actually printed out of a special little book of mine. Hold on, let me, let me find my little sheet. Um, I had this really great book, where did it go? That's called uh, Charts uh, Charts and Bible maps or something like that. And um, I've got it written I've I've actually um, marked it for us though, so hold on just a second. Let me see if I can reminds me also Revelation nine the and the Yes. Well, yeah, it reminds you of that absolutely, and and yet what we also know is that in that day, this is actually who is it? Who is actually coming against Israel in that day? Who gathers at the waters also? The armies of men, right? So it seems like there seems to be this imagery that goes back and forth. I have lost my sheet. (laughs) I had a sheet I printed out for you, Um, Randall Pierce, and I can't remember the other guy's name, Wayne something. They wrote a book called Bible Charts and Maps. And in there, they do a, lay, they do a layout of this uh, particular passage, in. and they make some very good points. Oh, I hope I didn't forget it because I really wanted to use it. Joel, Joel, Joel. Maybe this is it right here. No, that's not it either. I'm sorry, you guys. I'm, I've lost my paper that I really wanted to share. I was very excited about that, too. I even called my daughter, and we ended up talking about it for a long time. Well, I bet I pulled it out and left it for her because I was talking with her about it. I, I'll get it later. I'll get it to you later because it's really good. But anyway, in there, here's one of the points they made. They put po- the point, One of the points was this. Do we have... Uh, chapter divisions in books, in the books that we were reading. In the book, of, I mean, we do now, but when they were written, were there chapter divisions? No. So the flow of thought from chapter 1 to chapter 2 doesn't change just because there's a chapter number in there, right? His flow of thought continues all the way through, and so what uh, Randall Pierce and this other author said in, that, in his write-up on it was, he said, remember that there's a flow of thought and that he starts with talking about lo- locusts, which were literally attacking in that day upon the, on their land, and then he seems to make a transition which becomes apparent by the things that he says about it. They go from being an, an inanimate object, like an, or no, not an inanimate object, an, from being a bug to being something more human, right? Having an agenda, having a plan, having a course of action, being organized, and having a goal to overthrow at the end. So he says that of them, and the other thing he says is very common, obviously, in um, Old Testament, or in, o- in old literature, and even today, to use imagery, right, and personification, but in this case, imagery, where he starts out with the locust, and then he uses the image of what locusts do, and he places that imagery then upon what will happen in this day that is coming, okay? So... Would you say, for instance, in the book of Revelation, did we have imagery? Yeah. And did John use imagery that the people of that day would understand and then be able to comprehend either the power of certain people or... Or the, or the evilness of certain people or you know, the licentiousness, like the woman, for instance, and how she was dressed and what she did and sitting on many waters and so forth. Okay, that kind of imagery and that kind of uh, personification of certain things has always been used in prophetic words, right? So we have Joel who has done the same thing. He starts out, he's, he's speaking to the people, right? Did he have a message for the people in the day that he was speaking? absolutely so he was speaking to those people of in history at that time and there was a message and they, and he said look at these locusts there is a day coming it's going to be like this and then he then he makes the switch okay so it's, he's gone from being using what was occurring in their life at the moment and begins to lay uh, principles about it upon the the day that's coming in the end And in both cases, God's agenda is the same. What does he want them to do when you get into verse uh, 12 uh, of that chapter? He wants them to repent. Okay, now let me get my book open again. I got too many sheets here. All right. All right. So he says, who can endure it, right? Even now, who can endure it? Even now, though, what does he want them to do? Okay, so let's do twelve to, to seventeen and he says, Yet even now, and I'm gonna put that up there with my little red clock, yet even now to give you an indication of time. I think I'll put it right here. Because God gives that yet yet statement, yet even now. What does he want them to do? Return to the Lord. Okay, and that's in verse 13 specifically, but you can see it in other places also. And verse 1 is the day of the Lord is coming. Now, before we move on and go more into this idea of these pleas that God has to them for repentance, what, how does he close out verse 11? What does he say about this coming day of the Lord that is so... To me, it is the catalyst upon which everything else we're going to look at today lies. What does he say? It's dreadful and who can endure it. And, but what does he say in 11? It's Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, okay. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. And what does he say? For strong is? He who carries out his words. Oh, so what is God doing concerning the day of the Lord? He's carrying out his word. He's fulfilling what he has said he will do. Isn't that an amazing thought? Because, And would you say that when we look at um, end time events on the whole, that what we see is God is fulfilling his word? What is it that he's fulfilling specifically and for whom? What is he trying to fulfill and for whom? Okay, specifically, this is addressing a specific people, Israel. God has a certain promise to them. Do you guys remember what the promise was? They will have a land, a seed, and a nation, right? God has fulfilled some of those aspects, right? But what they haven't got yet and what they've never had fully is their people living securely upon the land and full possession of the land that he promised to them right? So he's working to that end. We studied in Ezekiel 36 a lot about God doing this, right? Is he doing this because Israel is so great and they're such great people and we just want to bless them? It is for his name's sake. How does this all work? If you want to explain this to somebody, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, why does he have to bless Israel for his name's sake? How does that work? Uh-huh. And if
1: if it weren't to come true, then his promises are no good.
0: Okay. So ultimately him fulfilling his word to Israel does what for God? Gives God credibility? Proves that he's what? That he's real, that he's reliable, that he's truthful, and and actually yes, because partly why is he having to vindicate his name? What did they do that he has to vindicate this?
1: They blasphemed his
0: name. <laughs> s- say it again. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Wow, did Ezekiel, remember that when he had to leave the temple? They had so blasphemed the name of God before the nations that God had to leave the temple and leave the city, right? And then Babylon came in and totally took over. And, and even in here we see later where he says, you know, the people will look around and say, where's your God, right? This defiles the name of God because he is not doing for them what he promised and what they tout, I mean, this is something they, you know, shine their fingernails on the shoulder uh, before the people saying, we are God's people, we are his chosen people. We are special, right? We are a distinctive people, a, a holy people unto God. And they really carry that as a, ba- as a badge of honor. And yet, were they living it? No. no. And so God's name was blasphemed. So he had to discipline them because of their unrighteous behavior. And yet, they wanted to claim to be his, and the whole world has been hearing from them for ages. They are his. And now God's throwing them off the land. They're like, oh yeah, where's your God now? Yeah. So God is going to have to vindicate his name because of their bad behavior, right? Not because they're so righteous, but because God promised that he would do this for this people. He promised to whom? Abraham, Abraham a faithful Abraham. One who had uh, believed on the Lord and then God credited it to him as righteousness, right? Genesis 15 three, or, or three, uh, Genesis fifteen six, something like that, right? Okay, so what we see then is there's the warning that the day of the Lord is coming and that, the, that everything that, that kind of this lays upon is the fact that um, he is going to carry out his word. So I'm going to put this on here for us, okay? To carry out God's word. You, if you put this in, in a timeline of events, this is after the promise to Abraham, this is after the people have been Uh, on the land and being disobedient this is God now bringing locusts on the land he's bringing a plague he is going to bring actually an army and there's going to be some immediate discipline on these people but in the midst of this there's also a second thing that happens not only does he speak to the people in the moment not only does he speak about in that day but he also speaks about kind of a principle that is true about God how if you will come to me and repent I will bless you I will I will restore you. Does he not, through the generations from the days of this occurrence all the way up until now, has God not ke- kept giving them second chances, third chances, fourth chances? He keeps giving them uh, opportunities to be faithful to him, right? And good, lots of grace. So I thought that, that this was such an insightful thing when I saw that he had written in here that that he, this day of the Lord is coming in order to for the purpose that he will carry out God's word. That gives you a great beginning to your outline. And then he says, yet, even now, even though I'm going to do this, he gives warning and he tells them about things that are going to happen, these darkness and gloom and, and armies that are going to come. And through the years, these do happen to them. But he's also saying, and even yet, yet, even now, there's opportunity for you to repent. Okay? All right, so now let's go to look at what we saw. Let me see here. Um, yeah, let's just go to the next section. Let's look at 18 to 27. We, we see all through 12 to 17, though, he calls on them. He wants them to ret- repent. He says in 13, now return to the Lord your God. Okay? What do we see in 18 to 27? If they will repent, what? Yeah. So he actually, although it doesn't say it in this way, I'm going to put it for the sake of clarity. When uh, they do repent... Because God speaks as if there is going to be a time when they will, doesn't he? When they do repent, what will he do? Yeah, he'll be zealous for his land. Um, he, I love the next verse right after that in 18. And he will what? He will have pity on his people. What does that re- remind us of? What does that make us think of? If he's going to have pity on us, what? That's what? Do we deserve it? No, it shows us the grace of God, right? And the compassion and mercy of God, his forgiveness. He will have pity. And I just think it's an amazing thought because you guys look at at throughout the generations, Israel and their rejection of Jesus the Messiah. And yet God is still saying that when they do repent... I will have pity on them. That is that is patience. That is long-suffering, is it not? He uh, demonstrated that with uh, Nineveh when, you know, when they were such rebellious people and that ended up sending Jonah there. Yeah. I remember Jonah just wasn't happy about that either, was he? But he knew that's what would happen. That's why he fled. Okay, now to... To further enhance our understanding that he is speaking about the day of the Lord that is coming and not in their present moment, how does he describe in verse 19 and 27 what's going to be the end result of this? He will have pity on his people, and then what will happen? uh, Yes, okay, and God will never again make Israel a reproach among the nations. Okay, that's, you see that in verse 19 and in 27. Would you say that's happened yet? No. Would you say that na- the nation of Israel, even yet today, is being made a reproach among the nations, that they, that they scorn her, that they ridicule her, yeah. that they belittle her, that they want to wipe her off the, ma- the face of the earth? Yeah. A reproach and a scorn. Okay, so God will never again. So this is where we also see very clearly that there's been a switch. From the imagery of a locust plague that was coming on the land in chapter 1 to now he's speaking about in that day and he's using that locust imagery and he's saying, these are the things I'm going to do in that day. Return to me and when they do, he will have pity and then they never again will there be a reproach on them. Now he says in 28 to 31 what? I'm hoping this is helping you see the flow of thought a little bit in this book going to be helpful. Okay, I love that you caught the time reference. Good job. After this, after this, what? Let's track it back. After this, what? Uh huh. After they do repent, what's he going to do for them? Yeah, I will pour out my spirit. And who's he going to sp- pour it out on? On Israel and all man, all mankind. OK? Now this is where we get a little a little bit confused, because we know from having done the book of Acts oh, sorry. we know from having done the book of Acts that the spirit has been poured out, correct? W- where do we see that in Acts? Chapter 2. So in, in the day of, of the birthing of the church, God poured out his spirit. Now, uh, were there some Jews who were saved in that day? Yes. Absolutely. And there were also who? Non-believers. Nonbelievers. In time, as you move through the uh, book of Acts, who becomes the major aggressor against Christianity and this new thing of faith? The Jews, right? So when you hit Romans, which I've brought up to you guys a couple of times, I took you into Romans chapter 11, let's go back to there, open up Romans 11, Um, I think it's 24 to 28, it it should be close right in there, or 26 maybe even to 27 might even be enough, but somebody read those four verses, 24 to 28. I guess, or if it, is that the beginning of a sentence, or am I off? I think you want 25, I do not want to. 25, okay. All right, go to, from 25 to 28 then. So I do not want you to be unformed in this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own it's estimation that a partial hurting has happened to Israel, and so the fullness of the Gentiles have come in,
1: and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. Hmm.
0: Well, that's good. Keep going. And the deliverer will what? The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Wow. Would you say that we're seeing that already then? He's almost repeating that here in Joel. He's saying when they do repent, he will have pity on them. They'll never again have a report. And then he says here in 28 to 31, I will pour my spirit out upon them. But Romans is explaining to us that in the days of the church, what happened with Israel on the whole? They were rejecting him, right? They were hardening their hearts against him. And it says that they were, he uses the imagery there of a tree and branches being broken off. And why are the Jews being broken off of their own root system? What was the reason that God was breaking them off? unbelief for unbelief God broke them off and then what happened with the Gentiles they got grafted in by how by faith same thing we believe we get grafted in if you don't believe you get broken off if you're a Jew right so what he says then in that is that uh, eventually when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in comes into what into faith and into what what do we call this age that we're in the church age. When the, when the fullness of Gentiles comes into this entity, this new thing called the church, then he says, then... So there, I need another clock, don't I? Then what will happen? Then God is going to begin his program to finish his work for Israel, then all Israel will be saved. He says that in here, God will never again make Israel a reproach among the nations, and I will pour my spirit on all mankind, but also on all Israel specifically, right? We don't have the full picture in this one verse, but what we have to do is develop what we know by adding in more insights. So what we know is, Right now, they're broken off because of unbelief. The church is being built up. When the church is full, then the, it's finished, then God will do what? He'll go back to Israel and re-pick up his agenda, re-pick up his program. Because what is he busy about doing? Carrying out his word. What did he say in that last part there about his covenant? His covenant is there, and, it, and, there, and it's irrevocable, Right? So he is going to fulfill his covenant promise to them. So what we can see here is he will pour out his spirit on all, on all mankind. In the context of this, who is he actually referring to specifically? On Israel. Right. We know that mankind, we, the church, got the Holy Spirit. But this record in its context is speaking specifically about how God is going to bring Israel around so that they will no longer be a reproach among the nations. God is going to fulfill his word to them. Okay? So context rules for how we're going to look at who he's talking about there. Right? All right. Uh, Look at Zechariah 12. That's a really great chapter. Love it. I love all of those uh, uh, in Zechariah 10, 11, and 12, 13. They're all really good. But we'll go into 12, and let's look in verse 10. He's talking about, and you can go up in, in verse 9 and see that he says, And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will do what? Okay, let's, I'm going to read it so that for the sake of the, of the recording. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me, me, Jesus, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping after a firstborn son." He goes on in verse 13, verse 1, and he says, And in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. This is speaking of that day when he does exactly what he says right here, I will pour out my spirit on all Israel. So I'm going to put on here Zechariah 12, 10, I think it was 10 and 11, right? And then 13.1, um, okay? And I'm going to give that a little Holy Spirit symbol so that you know that what we're talking about here is that this is the day when God is going to fulfill for Israel what he has promised for her, what is right now temporarily on hold. But when this time frame is complete, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then he's going to save Israel, right? All right. Let's see. He says um, in 32 then, there's a, a last, the very last thing. I, so let me see. Was that all the way to the end of that one? Yeah, that's the end. So I concluded with one last point in 32 for my outline of thought there. He's talking about a day when he's going to carry this out. He's asking them to repent, even now repent, but also in that day, repent, right? And he says, and I will have pity on them, and I will pour out my spirit on them. And then what is the promise he gives in 32? Isn't that awesome? Um, Let's put on here that one reference of time that he says, and it will come about. It will come about. God will do what? You said that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will be delivered, right? And also, there's another inference in there that. I think it's really important, especially if you're doing eschatology, you need all the little pieces. He says that God will provide something. What does he say? Doesn't it say escape? escape yeah, yeah that he will provide an escape. Does that remind you of anything that we have already studied in our Revelation of course, courses? What about um, Matthew also, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, they are to flee, is that not right? So, and, so, and he says he actually will provide for them a way of escape. He provides that escape in um, 2415, but, and we see it also in Revelation where he talks about the woman in the wilderness in, um, in chapter 12, right? There's the woman who's about to give birth and so forth, and then they, the dragon comes after her to pursue her, and she is to flee for how long? A time? Times and? Half a time. 1,260 days, which is a total of how long? Three and a half years. So whatever this event is of fleeing, he's saying you are going to flee. I am going to provide a way of escape for you. He's speaking to Israel. I will provide. God will provide escape and whoever calls on the Lord, what? Will be delivered. It's a, it's a long title for that last one verse, but I felt like it kind of um, gave the hope that they would need at this point, right? I mean, if God is promising to them and warning them about a day that's coming... And he is going to carry out his word. He says, go ahead right now, repent, if you will, right now. But, but for those who won't, he's saying, I'm going to have people, uh, pity on my people in that day so that they will never again be made a reproach among the nations. There was something going on for them right there in that day, Right where they were being made a reproach among the nations. So they understood what he was saying. And he's saying in that day, again, I'm going to be doing this for you so that you will no longer be a reproach. Uh, In some ways, it it has a double-edged sword in that statement. What he's saying is there are going to be a lot of generations, although they didn't know it. They may have felt in the days of Joel it was going to happen tomorrow, right? But what we now know is throughout all these generations... They have, they have had an opportunity to repent, and yet they wouldn't. And that they were going to be made a reproach, and they still are. So all these generations later, these are people who have been oppressed. Because why? Because they were stiff-necked. Because they were stiff-necked and stubborn, and they would not believe on the Lord. They would not believe his, his promises. They would not obey his promises. And they still aren't. That's right, and they still aren't. And therefore, it will come about, though, he is going to provide a way of escapes. Now... Um. So, when is this time frame then that God is going to do this? It looks to me like He's He's going to purify some of them. Right? There's going to be some who are going to come through and be saved. Does anybody remember where we looked at in our old studies on that about h- how many get saved and how? Well, those are the ones who are marked. Yes. Go back to Zechariah. Good job. Go back to Zechariah chapter 13, and let's look at 7 through 9. Actually, let's start with 8. He says, And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, I will refine them. Them who? Israel. I will refine them who, are, who will be brought through as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. Now, you tell me, how do they refine silver and, and gold? Through the fire. It's through the heat, right? The dross then is pulled off. And then they will do what? They will call on my name and I will what? I will answer them. Does that line up with what we're seeing here? That's exactly what he says here. He says, they will call him my name, I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So, Zechariah 14 explains to us then, this is going to be a process here of, of refining. And what's going to do the refining work? Fire, fire right? Intense fire. Persecution beyond that which has ever been seen before and will ever be seen again after its day. And God gives warning about it, and and he says in his mercy and compassion, but you know what? Even yet, return to me now. (laughs) Return to me now. You won't have to go through that. Return to me now, right? Okay. Um, Of that, God says, return to me with all your heart, The Lord will have pity, and you will know that I am the Lord your God. In 2.27 of Joel, he says that. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Um, Are there any other points in chapter 2 before we move into 3 that are confusing or that you need answers to? Are you guys, is it making pretty good sense at this point? Are, are you feeling better about Joel 2 now? <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad. <laughs> it's really not that hard if you do your outline, is it? Amazing what happens when you just do an outline. You just have to do those paragraph titles, and then you got it all figured out. What? There is so much in there, and quite honestly, a lot of it, if you don't know eschatology already, it can really bog you down because you get drawn off by so many points, you don't even know where to start. But what I hope I'm trying to show to you this morning is the disciplines of doing the inductive process, in this case simply finding the outline, finding that flow of thought, will help you then to find the chunky pieces rather than being bogged down with all those individual little pieces. Pieces. There's too much description about the day of the Lord, right? Although now that you know what it is, you can go back and look at it and go, "Whoa, I do not want to be here for that day of the Lord," right? And fortunately, we won't. Okay, um, there because God says in the closing verse also, not only to Israel, but He's saying to us through all generations, even now, return to the Lord, and anyone. Who does what? If anyone who calls on the Lord, he says they will be delivered. They will be delivered. So there's a deliverance that we can enjoy now that's distinctive, obviously, from what he's talking about there to them. Those who go end up going into this day of the lawless one being revealed and these events of doom and gloom and destruction and all of the hardships and being refined... Two-thirds of Israel, what's going to happen to two-thirds of Israel in this day? Be dead. Two-thirds are going to be killed through the events that are occurring in that day. One-third will come through refined. Matthew 24 says when you see the, a specific event, you're going to escape. And what does he do for those who do escape? He protects them in the wilderness, right? So there's a time he will be protecting as well. For those who actually, though, must do what? They must flee. So in other words, they must believe what God has said at that point. The only ones who are going to flee are those who are actually believing that what God has said is true. For those who hang out in Jerusalem and say, well, I'm not leaving my business. I'm not leaving my home. I don't want the, the invaders to come and take my stuff away. And if they hang in and if they stay on the rooftop and if they stay in the city, what's going to happen? They'll be killed. There's going to be devastation. Actually, Zechariah goes on to explain that day. Talks about the raping and the pillaging and the the, uh, murderous events which will take place in that day. Uh, Revelation speaks about it also in in a way in that in uh, the sixth bowl, the kings of the earth are going to gather and come against Jerusalem in that day. It's not going to be pretty. Okay, so then let's move on to Joel 3. We're going to do the same thing and get this flow of thought here. 1 to 8 of chapter 3. This is a good, a good report right here. Now that you kind of know what's going on and how you're looking at this, what do you see going on in these first eight verses? There's going to be a judgment. So God, they have a defender coming up to to work on their behalf, right? And he says about the oppressors that he's going to do something to them. What? What does he say here in these verses he's going to do? In Joel chapter 3, Let's look in verse 2. There's a very interesting phrase there that you're going to hear over and over about this. He's going to bring them to what? The valley of Jehoshaphat. To, to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And what's going to happen there? They are going to enter into judgment. So what, God, what is God telling us then in these, these first eight verses? And he goes on to kind of elaborate on it. But what is God going to do then? That's right. God... Will judge Israel's oppressors. That's in uh, two, I think, right? Verse two, specifically. Okay. So now go down to nine to fourteen, and, and one to one through eight. It just goes on. It talks in more detail. It talks about sire. Uh, t- uh, uh, Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia, and it talks about how he is going to, um, um, on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, he is going to enter into judgment with them there. And the place that he names is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Do you see that word repeated again anywhere in this chapter, by the way? Did you mark that word, the Valley of Jehoshaphat? Go down to verse 12, you see it again. The nations be aroused and let them come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. When does God um, arouse the nations? Do you remember in the book of Revelation when does God arouse the nations? At the end of seven years. That's right. At the end of well, see, we're actually in which bowl? When does He bring the kings together so that they're going to come down? Sixth bowl, that's right, in the sixth bowl. You were close. (laughs) Right, (laughs) I know, it's been a while since we did that. Um, But in Revelation also, we're going to see, he says in 9 to 14, what else is he going to do there? What is actually going on in 9 to 14? The wine press, press. and so therefore it tells you what is this actually, actually the day of that day of war, right? What does he tell them to prepare for? Prepare for war. How do they prepare for it?
1: Uh-huh.
0: They're going to bring their plowshares and do what with them? Turn them, into swords. turn them into swords. Now, this is really cool. Let's see if I've got it marked down here because I thought this was interesting. Um, the opposite is going to happen later. Someone turn to Isaiah 2.4. And someone else find Micah four three because this is really cool. Here at this time in history, God is going to tell them, "Take your what are what are plowshares or what are plows? It's a tool that you use for farming. And you do that during what kind of time? Time of peace, right? When you're harvesting and plowing and growing things, right? So He's going to tell them, "Forget the growing of crops. You're going to take the metal and you're going to make yourself swords." out of it at this time, right? But there's two verses where later he's going to do the opposite. And I just thought I just as it's just an extra little point. I just thought it was cool. Look at Isaiah 2:4. Okay, Diane.
1: And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their
0: swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Wow. Whoa, isn't that awesome? So the opposite will happen after this time, but during this time frame, he's he's saying, take your take your plows and hammer them into swords. Later, he'll say, now take your swords and and make plows out of them. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Micah uh, four three says the same thing. Where's Micah? Who has that one? Uh, Craig. I thought back. I was looking at him while she was reading. I thought she was reading Micah. I, I know. It's like almost word for word, isn't it? Wow, I'd say Micah and Isaiah got the same message from probably the same source. <laughs> That's almost word for word. Isn't that what's in at the top of the UN of all places? I don't know. It could be. It could be, yeah. Okay, so in 9 to 14 then, the gist of 9 to 14 then is if they are taking their plows and making, them, making swords out of them, what is he telling them to do? Prepare for war. He's telling them this is going to... God is going to judge Israel's repressors. And then he says, prepare a war. And I think it's interesting because he uses that definitive article again. A war, right? A war is coming. Um, And then he, he... accentuates our point for understanding, because we're trying to learn about the day of the Lord, right? What does he say in verse 14 at the end of all this, after he explains all that's going to happen during that time? What what is it that's near? The day of the Lord Lord is near. (laughs) The day of the Lord is near. Now, that's interesting, too. The valley of decision, that's actually a synonym. Did you notice that? What's it a synonym for? The Valley of Jehoshaphat. So if you don't have that marked in your Bible, you might want to do that. There are four references to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's in 2, 12, and then twice in 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the Valley of Decision. And then he goes on to give it some description... The sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will lose their brightness. Where have we seen that before in this writing? Yeah, go back to chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, and blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood. So he's already, he's just repeating himself. He's explaining what that day is going to be like. Here he has explained to us what the day is uh, uh, in, back in 2, he's explaining what that day is going to be like and that, that he will provide escape for those who will turn to him. And then here he's saying, now I want you to understand you need to prepare. It is coming. This is emphatic. This is not like I, it might happen, but if you guys be really good, then I can change my mind, right? No. God has said, I'm going to carry out my word. And this is the way it has to happen for it to be accomplished. And so he's going to do for Israel literally by refining fire. Have you ever had a child that's so stubborn that you have to take them to the full measure of of discipline before they will finally bow their their knee to you, so so to speak? They will relent and submit to your authority? I've got one of those. I've got to say, I'm not sure I've fully gotten him to submit yet. (laughs) To this day, he's still stubborn. But there are some people that way, And this is how Israel, the nation, has been. So stubborn that God is going to have to take them through that time of refining fire for them to bow their knee to him.
1: Is that war going to be World War III?
0: Well, I don't know that we want to call it. We want to call it something else, as a matter of fact. We actually have a name for it. Does anybody remember the name of, the, of the, the time frame when the kings gather? Armageddon. We call it Armageddon or Armageddon, some people say. Okay. All right, a day is coming. Now let's go to 16 or 15. It might be 15. 15 to 17. This is really cool. Actually, that should have been through 15 up here. Uh, this starts with sixteen. Okay. All right, so what do you see in sixteen through eighteen? Where is the Lord now? He is call, He is roaring from where? What does that tell you when a lion roars? Yeah, he's in charge. He is letting you know that he is making a statement, right? He is either warning you or he's announcing that he's present, right? So here we see the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So, and and when he does that, what does he say in verse 17? (laughs) Now, what did we learn in Ezekiel? Let's go back to what we learned in Ezekiel. Somebody flip over to Ezekiel 36. We're going to actually read 10 verses. It's a long one, 36, we're going to read 23 to 36. Why does he say that when he goes, when he is in Zion and he's there and his voice is heard, when he roars from, from Zion victoriously, why is it that that is what says, then you will know I am the Lord? Because what will he have done by, by doing that? Fulfilled his word. Then you will know that I am the Lord. What is it that gives us um, knowledge and understanding that, our God is true, he fulfills his word. He pronounces it beforehand, and then he does it, right? And that's one of the, the, the earmarks even also of true prophets. If they speak on behalf of God, what it they speak must come true. And if it does not, they are not a true prophet of God, right? Then you will know that I am the Lord. All right, go to, go to that Ezekiel verse and read what you see there. Ezekiel thirty six twenty three to 36. Who has that? Susan, thanks. I will
1: vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols moreover I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field. So that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember all your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, This desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt their ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and
0: will do it. Whoa. Wow, is that not an awesome verse, a companion verse for this particular area? The Lord will roar from Zion, and then you will know that I am the Lord. He will vindicate his holy name. He will take Israel. He will, he will cleanse them. He will pour his spirit on them. He will place them on their land, and now they will be his people, and, and he will be their God, which is what God wanted all along, right? So here we see at this point then in 16 and 17 of Joel chapter 3 that the Lord is going to do that. He will roar from Zion and they will know that he is their God. And in 18 to 21 then he concludes by saying what? What is all of this uh, also in, including? Because I think this is very interesting and it has something to do with what we looked at in Revelation as well. In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow. I want to get one more verse. Uh, With milk and honey, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go forth from the house of the Lord. Oh, boy. Go back to uh, Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. Uh, You don't have to read the whole thing, but somebody do a good job of picking up the right verse for me. (laughs) But, well, you know, because it's really interesting, because when we studied Ezekiel, we, do you remember when we saw the spring that came out of the, from the temple, right? And it waters the land? Okay, that's this verse. Somebody read it. Who has it? Is it two? He brought me okay. by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate by the way of the gate that faces east, and behold, water was trickling from the south side. Okay, keep going. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubics, and he and he led me through the waters, water reaching the. What's that thing? <coughs> you read it. My eyes are red.
1: Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. Uh, He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh.
0: Okay, now tell me what the, what is that sea of the Ar- Arabah, wherever they have the That's the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the saltiest uh, water uh, uh, concentration of water mass on the Earth today. And what he's saying here is that water is going to come out of the temple and go down to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea will become fresh water. And I think it goes on to say, and it will become a fisherman's paradise. Fish do not live in the Dead Sea today. But I thought it was really cool just to kind of bring that out because I remembered when we studied about the water coming out and, the, and it kept measuring different points. And I, I thought, well, why is this an important thing? What is the point to all of that? What does the water flowing from the temple symbolically? What is that telling the people? Life-giving water comes from God's throne, right? And so, in His vision of this new of the of the uh, millennial temple, He's saying, in that day, there is going to be a symbolic picture. Even yet, in that day that God is going to be the life giver and he is going to give life giving water to the people to this very day in Israel. Water is a treasure because it's difficult to find. Okay. Now let's go back on again to 18 to 21. I just had to throw that in there extra. It was good. Okay. Let's do, um, uh, all the way down to 21. What do we see in conclusion? What is God doing? Once he, br- he brings them back on the land, his name is going to be holy. holy. It's going to be vindicated. Then what? Blessing upon
1: blessing upon blessing upon blessing.
0: Okay. Israel. Yes. And Egypt is going to become a waste. Okay. And so Edom is, and? And Edom. And Edom is going to become a waste. And what else? The Lord dwells in What does it say in Verse 21. Wow, I wanted to thank you so much for that little extra. Yeah. I will avenge the blood. Now, is that something we've heard about before, that God will actually avenge the blood of his saints? What do we see in 2 Thessalonians about those who are persecuted? That he will, he will persecute or he will afflict those who afflict, right? So there's going to be a, a recompense upon those who bring um, uh, harm to god's people well this principle remains also true for the house of israel in that day and he says about them um, i will avenge their blood which i have not avenged for the lord dwells in zion go to revelation 6 10 uh, this is one more point and we're and we'll be done with the majority of what we need to do today What does he say there? Now, this is the um, one of the um, seals are being broken. It's at the beginning of the account of Revelation, and the sixth seal is broken. And what is said in that particular seal? Oh, I'm sorry, it's the fifth seal. You're right. Yay, how long will, you, will it be until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Later in Revelation, there's again a point where he talks about avenging their blood. And so what we see then is God is promising, even all the way back in Joel, before it was said in Revelation that he would avenge bl- the blood of those who had, who had been martyred and killed in those days, he says in, in Joel also, I will avenge Israel's blood. Now, why is that? Why is God so concerned about how the world treats Israel? Because it's his chosen one. Hmm? It's his chosen Okay, it's his chosen one. And what does that show to you about the world, if they're willing to touch God's, the apple of God's eye, so to speak, as he says? What, what does that show about their heart? When you see Abedinajad and ISIS and these other leaders that we have even in the world today and they're and they're and they're shouting death to Israel. What what is it that they're really doing? Thank you. You did a very good job on that. Celeste. Back to what we learned in our our first week's lesson of the second Thessalonians and that is if you touch my people you touch me. Remember also back in Acts, Paul said when pa- when Paul had his revelation of Christ before him, and he said to Paul, what? Why are you persecuting me? Well, who had Paul been persecuting? The church, the Christians. So when the, when the Christians are persecuted, it's God that they're actually uh, 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 persecuting. When you touch the apple of God's eye, it is actually God that they are rebelling against. The real, the real enemy here is between who? Satan and God. And God has said, I will do thus, and this will prove to you that I am the Lord, that I, am, I will vindicate my holy name. Satan does not want that, right? So it, the last statement he says here is, again, a point of vindication for his holy name. I will avenge Israel's blood, for the Lord dwells in Zion. How is he going to ultimately avenge it is simply where he goes, where he avenges. Okay, now what we need to do, we've got just a few more minutes left, and I'm glad to see that because what we want to do then is set yourself up now for, Now, before I go on, do you have any more questions about this? Were there any points that you were lost on and you want straightened out in Joel chapter 2 and 3? Wasn't that fun to go through that though and to see how it fits in with these end time things? Okay, all right. Now let's go to the church in the day of the Lord. This was your last question by Kay on day five of your homework. She said, she asked you the question, where will the church be in the day of the Lord? Then what have we learned about that specific question? So we have to kind of switch our our figures around just a little bit. Let's start by looking at the 1 Thessalonians 4 passage and just kind of do some points about what we learn about that we see on the whole what's happening in that particular record about people who have died they, they have that's they are worried about that and in the conclusion of that what happens to everybody in that in four so yeah we're caught up right to be with the lord where in the air. Now, that's real significant. And if you do not have in the air marked in your Bible, I would highlight it so that you understand that this is not Jesus coming back and his feet touching the earth. This is a point where he is going to meet us in the air. So it's distinctive from that second coming when he comes and touches the earth. So I'm going to start with we are caught up. Because where is the church in that, in that day? We are caught up in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air okay now that's in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4 417 all right now let's back up then and let's do what you started to do Susan let's go in and let's order the sequence of events that we see there concerning that being caught up just for the sake of getting you prepared for Kay's video okay what does it say that we are going to do there's a process what happens first? And before that, though, who? what happens? The Lord descends. The Lord descends. Let's not forget that part, <laughs> just because it's important. The Lord descends. Okay, with the trumpet of God. Okay, we're going to do a trumpet there. Okay, the Lord descends. What verse was that? 16. Okay, now number two. Go back to that one again. Then, then what happens? The dead in Christ rise. Now, this is an important one to also talk about. The dead what? What dead? The dead in Christ, but, but the dead what? When Jesus resurrected, what rose? The body If you do not have body inserted in there, you're going to get confused. I want you to give yourself a little note. It's the dead body that ascends, right? Because it's talking about, I don't want you to be worried about those who have fallen asleep, right? Because they're concerned about that, as Susan said. And those who have fallen asleep are those who have what? Died. There's a physical death. So their bodies are where? In In the earth. So what we see here is, it says, and the dead bodies... Rise, correct so you might want to insert that word instead of just the dead put bodies in christ those who are in christ of course no one else will rise first why first why do they have to go up first I know, but but think about it. Because what is the next thing? It says that the ho- then who goes? Those who are still alive. Those who are still alive then are caught up w- how? Together. Together with them. So why do the dead bodies have to come up first? So that we can be with them. There you go. Exactly, Susan. It seems pretty silly, but they're six, six foot under, right? So they rise first, and when they come up to where we are. Then we're together, and we go together. Isn't that cool? Okay, we'll rise first, number three. Um, then we who are alive, I know, it's, it's so, so simple that we, you can miss it. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up. Together with them, but the only way to get together is if they start first because they're down deeper. <laughs> okay, so that's verse sixteen. The dead bodies in Christ will rise first, and then in verse seventeen, then we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them. And then it, I want us to put a, a fourth point. You may not have done this; you may have missed it, but I want you to go back to verse thirteen. When Jesus comes, what does he say he brings with him? Very interesting. Okay, the dead bodies are in the earth, and the dead body is coming up. Jesus is coming, and who's coming with him? So what? The spirit of those who have deceased. So what happens then, the fourth thing is God. it says God will bring with Jesus and and he says those and I'm going to put in parentheses souls just like we put over here bodies we're also saying souls now he brings with those souls who have fallen asleep now what does this tell us That the soul's are already with Christ. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 10. Did you notice my picture on your chart that I gave you guys to work on? Do you see the picture of Jesus and what's all around him? Those little doves. What are those representative of then? Us, our souls. For those who have died and are already with the Lord, when Jesus comes, he brings the souls with him. What's coming up out of the, out of the tomb? The, body. the, the body. bodies. Isn't that cool? So we got a
1: okay, yes. Then do we get joined with
0: our bodies? Mm-hmm. And what do we get according to 1 Corinthians 15? In- imperishable. Yes. That which is mortal puts on immortality. That which is perishable puts on what My is physical, imperishable? Decayed
1: bones. Body
0: comes back to life. Comes back to
1: life.
0: Just as Jesus is dead.
1: Now am I still asleep? I'm aware of this.
0: You're not asleep because you're where? Where's your soul? And who but are you coming back with, with? With Christ. With your soul is with okay, Jesus, so. and you're coming back. Your body, which has been sleeping,
1: the body is asleep, so this is brought up. So asleep in Christ are just
0: the dead body. The dead body the shell. That's exactly right. That's why I say in First Corinthians 15, wherever you see the the dead mentioned, mark in that 1 Corinthians 15, the dead body. This is speaking about the physical resurrection of the dead body. Because just as Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, we too shall get a new body. That's what the resurrection prom that's what the whole promise is. So our dead bodies come out of the earth, Jesus comes with our soul from heaven. 1 Corinthians, let's do the 1 Corinthians first. Hold on. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 10. And Kay is going to go through this in great detail. You're going to love it. Okay, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 10. Before we get there, one
1: thing is that when Jesus told Martha that uh, I'm the resurrection and the life, he says everyone
0: who lives and believes in me will never die. Mm-hmm. So being di- dead. That's exactly right. That's why we are considered asleep. That's a very good point to make, Craig. Did everyone hear that? The reason we as believers are never considered dead is because we are alive in Christ and our souls never die and our souls are never going to experience death. We leave this body and we are, according to First Corinthians, what? Someone read that. First Corinthians 5, 6 to 10. Uh, 2 Corinthians, I think. (laughs)
1: Therefore, um, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or
0: evil. Okay. and he, So he, in that particular passage, Paul is talking about this tug-of-war he has within himself, whether he to stay here alive or whether he's is to go and be at home with the Lord. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay. So we know that when we physically die, our spirit... The, that which makes us up as a person and a personality we go to heaven what we okay listen carefully Rome in Revelation six ten, those souls beneath the altar who are people who have died right. they're conversing with one another and they are saying to God God how long until you avenge our blood does that tell you they have cognitive cognitive remembrance of their life Are they communicating beings? Are they still communicating? When we see um, the worship even that's going on in heaven, uh, do we not see worship of those spirits in heaven? Yes. So what we know is that when we leave this body and we go to be the Lord, life does not cease. We step from life into what? Everlasting life, eternal life, the real life, the life where there's going to be a better body given to us at some point, right? We're waiting for that day for our resurrection, right? Jesus promised that to us. In 1 Corinthians, it says that if, if, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we're worse than all men to be pitied, right? But we do believe in the resurrection, and we are waiting for that day when we are resurrected. So in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one to 54, you did homework on that. What did you see there that, that's going to happen? Those who are falling asleep, what will happen at this point? What is it, what's being described to us here? Yeah, and then what happens? We will all be changed. And how, and how does he describe it? That which is mortal does what? Puts on immortality. So what is that speaking of? The resurrection of the body, right? Okay, so this mortal must put on immortality. That's in verse 53 specifically, but there's other ones. This is speaking of the resurrection. I'm going to put this on here in another color. So that you see it for sure, okay? This, what he has just explained here about the being caught up is this resurrection that is promised in 1 Corinthians 15 of the mortal body putting on that which is immortal. All right, now, 1 Thessalonians 4 is another one we looked at, 4, 13 to 5, 11. This is an interesting contrast because there's the they and the us in this, in this little piece that we looked at. What are they saying about that daytime, that time of events? Peace and safety. Yeah, they will say peace and safety, but what's going to actually happen to them? destruction is going to come upon them. Have we not seen that just by what we looked at in Joel? Um, in three, what does it say about them? Will they escape? Will they be able to escape that day, those who are in, not in faith? No. no, they will not be able to escape. But what did God pr- uh, promise those who would, who would uh, repent and that he would pour his spirit on them, and then God says he's also going to do what? He's going to provide escape for those who will who will come into faith. Here he says, though in First Thessalonians four, they will not escape those who do not have that repentance. The, and I love this. Someone look up Colossians three six because it's very a very definitive statement. It wasn't one of our verses, but it came to me as I was studying. Uh, Colossians three six. Yes, because of what? So how does it? How does the whole? You might have to back up a little bit. I do that a lot. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature: sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of Okay. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. These men who will not repent, these men who will not submit to God, these men who are afflictors of Israel, these men who oppress uh, anything that's godly or Christian or righteous in those days, even in this present day for that matter. But ultimately in in Joel 2 and 3, they're talking about a specific coming day. We're in a day right now of lawlessness, but there is the lawless one that's coming, and there is the day of apostasy which is about to come upon us. We're not there yet, but it's coming. And when that day comes, he says, they will not escape, and it's because of their evil that wrath is coming upon them. The wrath of God is coming, and they will not escape. They will not escape. Now, but what about us? This is the the grand finale today. Romans 5... 9 1 Thessalonians 1 9 and 10 1 um, Thessalonians Well, I guess that's good enough. Those those two will work. Let's look at Romans 5, 9. They will not escape but what? Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, shall be sent from the of God. All right. Because of the because of what? Because of Christ, because of his blood, we shall be saved through Jesus from the wrath of God. Okay, what else do we see? Um, How about 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10? What does he say about that day of wrath, which is what we're seeing here? Wow. So we are not destined for wrath. So the day of wrath that is coming when that lawless one is revealed, we are not destined for that day. Rather, we are destined for what? Salvation. Not for wrath. What a word. Now, can you see then why he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 and again in 5.11, therefore, comfort one another with these words? He's telling them, you're not destined for that. You don't have to worry about that day of wrath. You're not going to go through that time. You are not destined for that. God has promised you he is going to descend. He is going to bring those who belong to him up to be with him in the air. We saw last week some other little pieces to that puzzle. One had to do with the day when we will go before the Bema seat to receive reward for the life that we've lived. It's, when we did chapter 1, we said, why must we endure in afflictions? Because one day God is going to come and glory is going to be given to those who do what? persevere in faithfulness right so we know that there are other events going on this day of the lord is a big time frame but what is this time called actually this is not called the day of the lord right what is our time frame called the church age and also it's called the last days we are in the last days but we are not in the day of the lord and we're not at that time frame called the end we are in the last days. Let me see if I can find. Um, uh, Acts 2.17 is where you found that. The last days. Acts 2.17 said the last days. We are in the last days. But those days are called the day of the Lord and it's called the, de- the end or the time of the end, or at the time of wrath, all right? All right, guys, we did really good. Any other questions before we close it out today? What an awesome study that was about the day of the Lord. I'm excited about it. Y'all have a great week. See you next time.